Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact regarding our last programme on the rollout of the childcare programme for after-school services. You can still listen back on our website at newstalk.com or on our Go Loud app. And also, last week, we picked up the Justice Media Award for our programme on sentencing, crime and punishment. You can still listen back via GoLoud app as well. Well, coming up today, we'll be discussing climate change and climate action. What needs to be done? We'll be joined by a panel of experts in just a few moments' time. But to start us off today, we're joined on the line by Dara McCullough, who's a farmer and presenter of Ortiz Ear to the Grind programme. Dara, thanks for joining us today. A pleasure, Andrea. I thought it was quite interesting recently, Dara. I was just reading some commentary from Mark Griffin, the um, Department for Communications, Climate Action and the Environment. And he said that Ireland is going to have to be turned entirely on its head over the next decade to try and tackle climate change from a farming perspective. What's the impact of those comments? And This kind of commentary is kind of freaking out farmers at the moment. Uh, and a lot of them are going around feeling like environmental terrorists, to be honest with you. Every time they turn on the tractor, they're polluting the environment. Every time they plough a field, they're releasing carbon. Every time they milk a cow, they're uh, creating emissions. Uh, every time they put a cow in calf, um, they're perpetuating the cycle. And they feel like if that they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. And it's creating a fair bit of resentment among the sector because they feel like that they're in a corner and uh, there's fingers being pointed at them from all angles. And really, they're doing the same thing as they've always been doing, i.e. farming cattle or ploughing fields. And uh, why does this suddenly make them, uh, you know, the, the environment's number one enemy? Uh, and the problem, I think, here is that we've got too many people saying, Agriculture must cut its emissions, and I don't disagree with that, but nobody's saying how to. And I think that's the next stage of this whole process. Nobody in in farming or agricultural circles will disagree that emissions from agriculture have to be dealt with. We have to come up with some uh, solutions, but nobody is putting forward the solutions. And, you know, farmers are... Uh, responsible agriculture is responsible for nearly a third of Ireland's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. That's a huge proportion um, up there with transport. But you know the fact that farmers are responsible so for so much of the emissions also makes them key to the solution. So in other words, farmers can have a bigger impact on actually mitigating emissions than almost any other sector in society. Well, interesting with regards, I suppose two different things have happened in, in recent weeks or in recent months. I mean, first of all, Dara, Ireland's been, what, the second country in the world to declare a climate and biodiversity emergency, which is mm-hmm. something we've, we've discussed in detail here on the programme. Um, separate to that, we also have the, the, the climate action plan from the government and I suppose my understanding of certain elements of that programme was that there would be a greater focus on perhaps um, branching into different areas, greater efforts in terms of sustainability that farmers will have to look at, trying to avoid if you like an increase in a a farmer tax idea but to actually look at other alternatives. Yeah and this is a, a kind of a wider debate within the agricultural sector so 
The first thing is that the heaviest emitter, if you like, in the agri-sector also happens to be the most profitable, and that is the dairy sector. And the uh, dairy sector has increased um, its cows and therefore its emissions by almost 30% um, and maybe heading for 40% over the last five years. There's a simple reason for that. It's because uh, quotas were uh, eliminated, milk quotas that held back, uh, artificially held back milk production in this country. And once the handbrake was set off, uh, farmers followed uh, the money, so to speak, um, and they're pumping out milk like it's going out of fashion. The problem is that more dairy cows means more emissions. Now, uh, one of the, if you look to the wider agricultural sector, there is a problem of lax profitability. So if you look to the beef sector, hardly anyone is making a profit in that sector, and yet they have all these uh, animals that are also emitters. So the sneaking suspicion amongst farmers is that policymakers are sitting back in their hands and letting the uh, basically the lifeblood ebb out of the beef sector in the hope that um, numbers, uh, sucker cow numbers, will dwindle away and basically compensate for the increase in dairy cow numbers. But that isn't, uh, that isn't a sustainable solution because you've got lots of farmers out there, thousands of farmers, who uh, uh, have depended on beef up to now. So they need alternatives. I mean, they can't uh, just go out of business and magically disappear. Uh, they're still going to be part of the fabric of rural Ireland. And it'll be a big problem in the fabric of rural Ireland if they don't have a way of making a living. Uh, what can that living be? What can that alternative be? Sheep farming isn't really a great alternative. Daring isn't going to be the answer for everyone, apart from the fact that it's, it's going to only add to our climate change emissions. But you know, you need a particular type of land, you need a particular size, scale of holding. And most beef producers tend to be small part-time operators west of the Shannon. So for those guys, they're not going to be able to go into grain production or horticulture because, again, the land isn't suitable for ploughing and tilling on a regular basis. So what are the alternatives? And if you say forestry to these guys, it's like raving a red, waving a red rag in front of a bull because... You know, ask any farmer, Leitrim, he's not interested in forestry. They already feel that their their forestry is closing them in from all sides. I think there has to be some really imaginative thinking on this, uh, Andrea. It could be in the form of, you know, cooperative anaerobic digesters where farmers pool their grass that isn't being eaten by beef cows, for example, and uh, they go into these anaerobic digesters, and that's used to transform the energy in the grass into heat and electricity. That would be really novel, but it would would take a serious push from mm. government and already government have been very reluctant to get stuck into um, funding renewable energy projects at farm level. There's basically no renewable energy projects at farm level. Government have been kind of reluctant, kind of feeling that the goalposts were shifting so fast in the technology that it was pointless uh, rolling out schemes. Okay. And of course, we just look at the cash for ash situation in the north to see how a renewable energy goes wrong. Uh, you can maybe understand the reluctance. Just with regards to, for instance, the focus on kind of sustainable food production and CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy, Mm -hmm. I know the government said, I think only early last month, that this new climate action plan that's been rolled out is, you know, kind of been designed to sort of ensure that the agricultural sector in Ireland is prepared for changes to the future, changes within the future. Just with regards to their plans through or their aims to try and deliver the the Chagask target, you know, reducing the gas Mm -hmm. house, greenhouse gas emissions from farming by about 30% um, over the next 10 years or so up to 2030. What's your view on how they can do that? Yeah, 
there's going to be a whole suite of measures rolled out uh, at farm level all across the country. And uh, some of these will be scheme-driven, i.e., you know, the cap uh, funds that uh, flow into farmers' bank accounts up and down the country. Every single farm in the country is pretty much a recipient of cap funding. And we're talking about 1.5 billion euros that flows into directly into farms from European taxpayers' uh, funds. Uh, currently, that money, in my opinion, is really poorly targeted. So it's based on historical payments. In other words, how many acres you are farming or how many head of beef cattle you had back 20 years ago. A totally nonsense basis for paying out these funds. The policymakers have a golden opportunity here. The cap has been re, uh, due to be rebooted over the next uh, seven years. Um, typically, that only get, involves a bit of tinkering at the edges. We probably need wholesale restructuring of how cap funds are redistributed. I mean, in very simple terms, we could develop a nationwide rep scheme, the Rural uh, Environmental Protection Scheme in the 90s was a huge success. It was up on 60,000 farmers involved in it at any one time. And that basically incentivized farmers to do to implement a whole series of measures on the farm to, for the benefit of the environment. Um, we need something like that again on a national level. But aside from the cap funds, there are other things that will happen and need to happen at farm level. So, for example, if you're a dairy farmer, you need to switch from splash plates spreading, which is the typical slurry spreading system where the slurry is fired up in the sky. The problem there is you get a heap of gases escaping into the atmosphere and they're very uh, harmful for the climate and the atmosphere. Uh, if the new technology basically allows farmers to inject that into the ground. The problem, of course, that technology costs. It's bigger machinery, bigger kit, new kit, and that's going to take money. But, you know, if, uh, for example, you're a dairy farmer and you're making uh, a good profit out of your system, then you've got to invest in this kind of technology for the future. Okay. It's not just machinery. It's things like uh, different types of fertilizer, protected urea is the latest product on the market. That can reduce emissions from your fertilizer spreading. Also, things like you know incorporating more clover in your pasture. That's a way of fixing nitrogen naturally into the ground rather than relying on, on the chemical fertilizer that's been spread on fields. And then basic kind of farm, good farming practice, you know, breeding the most efficient types of animals will actually help you become more profitable and also reduce emissions. So there's going to be a major drive nationally at farm level to try and implement this whole suite of measures, a menu of measures that every farmer is going to have to buy into. Because if they don't, if they just stick their heads in the sand... Um, I think they're going to end up in even uh, deeper trouble. Okay. Can I just ask you, Dara, on an entirely separate note, just because it has been quite topical in, in recent days, and that's the, the trade deal between the EU yeah. and uh, the, the Mercosur countries in South America. Um, noteworthy on a number of points, I suppose, in terms of kind of the scale and the timing of it. But just as a broadcaster and farmer, what's your view? Yeah, I mean... It's hard not to see the Mercosur deal as another nail in the coffin of the suckler sector. The suckler cow farmer uh, is entirely dependent on the profit he makes from the beef calf that he sells. He doesn't have an income from milk. He doesn't make money out of crops. It's all from the sucker cow and her progeny. It's the, the sucker cow farmer 
can't produce beef. He's basically producing at a break-even uh, level as we speak. The only profit that's in it, so to speak, is the uh, those EU funds that we talked about earlier that get paid into his account every year. The problem for him is that the beef, the Brazilian beef farmer, is able to produce beef at 50%, at half the cost that the Irish uh, producer is able to produce it. And now the Mercosur deal is going to basically invite uh, an extra 100,000 tonnes of Brazilian beef onto the European market. And the Irish beef farmer is entirely dependent on the European market, maybe even more dependent on the European market after Brexit, because at the moment, 50% of our exports go to to England. But, you know, if, uh, uh, sorry, to Britain, if if Brexit happens and it's a hard Brexit and and they open up their borders to uh, beef imports from everybody and anybody, then the Irish beef sector needs to look to Europe. But just on on that though, I mean, in terms of kind of tempering the response to it, like the fact that the Irish market will have access then to one of the largest um, markets outside of the EU, could that not be a positive? Uh, the Irish uh, Irish beef is never going to sell in Mercosur countries. They produce really good quality beef. I've been there. I've been on the Brazil, the Argentinian Pampas. Uh, it's a gorgeous environment for rearing beef cattle, and they can do it. Uh, at half the price that Irish producers can do it. So there is going to be no zero opportunity for Irish producers to sell beef into South America. There will be some opportunity for Irish dairy producers because they are globally competitive, but that's of no benefit to Irish sucker farmers. However, Andrea, I would say this. You know, at the moment we hear a lot of kind of doomsday scenarios being um, talked about uh, how it's going to decimate the Irish beef sector. As long as we're producing milk in this country, we're also producing beef because, of course, a dairy cow produces a beef calf 50% of the time. Uh, again, it's no good to the suckler farmer, and it goes back to that point we talked about earlier, that we need to really start getting our thinking caps on, coming up with alternative, uh, alternative systems for the suckler cow farmer. But we will still be producing a beef-producing country as long as we're producing okay. milk here. We'll leave it there for the moment. My thanks to Dara McCullough, farmer and presenter of Ortiz Ear to the Ground programme for sharing his views with us here on Between the Lines today. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. Well, you're welcome back to the second part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're discussing the government's climate action plan, how it will affect you and what the effects and responsibilities will be for each and every one of us. We're joined in studio by our panel today, Eamon Ryan, who's the leader of the Green Party and TD in Dublin, and also Dr Cara Gustenberg, who's a senior fellow at UCD's Environmental Policy Programme and Council of State. My thanks to you both for joining us today. Thank you, Andrea. Um, I might start just maybe, Cara, with yourself, first of all, as I suppose an environmental lobbyist and activist in terms of the government's climate action plan just what was your now that you've had a couple of weeks to kind of dissect it what's your your view? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a plan of two halves. I mean, in one sense, uh, an ambitious accomplishment for Richard Bruton in only eight months as Minister for Environment to actually put something like this together. Uh, I thought the, the the plans on governance and legislation, on improving the, the climate legislation and improving the powers of the Climate Advisory Council and in, including a carbon budget for each sector were strong. But then when you get into the details within each sector, I think that's where it falls down. And 
and and becomes a, a, a weaker plan. In in what way do you mean in terms of for each industry? Yeah, well, if you look particularly at, at transport, I mean, there's a huge reliance on replacing all of our petrol and diesel cars with electric vehicles and a, a trajectory of, of a million electric vehicles by 2030. Now, there's 10,000 electric vehicles on the road now. The government had a plan of 250,000 electric vehicles mm. by 2020. That's We're nowhere near that. So I think this, this idea that we're going to solve our transport emissions by just replacing all the cars with electric vehicles is is perhaps unrealistic and, and really showing you know a, a government that perhaps doesn't get the where the real challenge and the real solutions lie. Is it too ambitious? Uh, it, it's am- ambitious in the wrong places. So the ambition on electric vehicles is is over ambitious. But you know the the other ideas of, of smarter travel, of getting less, uh, getting more people to switch from from cars to other forms of, of transport, uh, isn't there at all. So so it's focused on the wrong things. Okay. Can I bring you in, um, Eamon Ryan? Just I suppose really kind of looking at it from a political perspective. Mm-hmm. I know obviously as part of the Green Party as well. But would you agree? Is is the plan too ambitious in the wrong areas? Um, I think, firstly, we should recognise the good things that's happening is that there has been increased public interest in this whole issue. And it's not just a climate change issue, it's the related issue about loss of biodiversity. And I think the climate strikes that people have seen, the kind of David uh, Attenborough kind of raising the planet Mm -hmm. in peril, the scientific reports that are coming out, even just this week, that uh, report from Birdwatch Ireland showing that all our bird species in in rapid decline. That public interest is starting to translate into increased political interest in the issue and a desire to do something about it. And that's welcome. And as as much as the climate um, plan kind of reflects that, then it's a good thing. Now, I think what there still isn't an understanding in the political level is actually then translating into the doing is going to be for the better. It still seems something we're kind of slightly wincing, thinking, oh, we don't particularly want to change the transport. Just take that as an example. Um We have a system in transport which for 50 years has been dominated by the car, which has been dominated by development that keeps going out and out and out and people having longer and longer commutes. We've reached the end of that road. Not only do we not need to change it for environmental reasons, and and Cara's absolutely right, just switching to electric vehicles is not enough because then we'd still be using huge amount of energy and resources in making those cars and in all those tyres and in all that steel mm. and in all that effort. And it's not just that. As we keep going out and out and out, we'd have to keep building schools further out and then hospitals further out and then houses further out. We're, and then the centre, what, what would happen in the last 50 years, the centre can, continues to decay You've all these towns in Ireland where you know people know it, the main street you drive through and there's buildings boarded up. Yeah. There's huge embodied energy and emissions in that model. And I think what the political system still doesn't understand, Fine Gael uh, uh, among them, is that actually you know, changing the complete transport model back towards living people and people living closer to the centre, using all that existing housing really effectively. Um, having shorter commutes, having children walking and cycling to school rather than driving, being being driven, um, is actually the better way to go. And we need to stop resisting that and seeing as something we're being forced into because some international treaty is telling us we have to do it. We have to do it for ourselves. And, and I think this is doable because one of the good things about the plan and about the approach that we're all taking is that it is iterative. It's not 
fixed in sand and, and it has to change because it's not good enough in a, for a variety of areas. So I think to answer, go back to your first question, is it ambitious enough or too ambitious? It is what it is. Question is, will we as a country be able to make the leap we need to make? And it's a leap for the mm. better. I think we will. I think that has to be recognising that in the area of transport in particular, it has to change. It's recognising the area of farming and in forestry and in protecting wildlife and in storing our bog or saving our bogs. That actually the plan is a good step in the right direction, but actually it needs to go 10 further steps. And I think that has to be agreed politically across parties. We won't do it if we turn it into a slagging match. We won't do it if there isn't public support for it. But I think that's coming. I think people are starting to wake up that this is the better way to go. Can I ask you, Cara, because obviously Eamon and the Green Party and and some of his representatives have seen um, a really substantial rise in political support in in both the the local and recent European elections. Do you think is that reflected right across the country? Will people, are people voting for a better, safer, cleaner, more sustainable environment? Like is that, do you think is that actually the view? I think there's been a huge sea change in the last couple of years uh, in the media, first of all, in how climate and environmental issues is covered. And a lot of that is credit to shows like this and and The Hard Shoulder, which which are covering these issues weekly now. And, you know, we're not doing this, does climate change exist anymore and having to bring in the token denier. The tone hasn't changed. So the tone, the nuances, the debate, um, just in, in talking to the public, you can see they're so much more informed on the issues and the nuances of the issues. Uh, so so that's probably a catalyst for all of this. And I think it was very, very hopeful that every politician in the last election who was knocking on doors was saying that climate change was coming up in the top five issues on the doorsteps. And that wasn't just Green Party candidates. That was, that was politicians from all parties. So I think the public is there and gets this. And perhaps that's because climate change is, is among us now and it, it's happening more. And so we see it and we feel it. Uh, and I think the politicians are always a little bit behind the public in terms of, of getting where, where the public trend is. And, and so perhaps they haven't quite realized uh, that that this great green wave is happening to the extent that it is. But I think we will see this in the in the next election. We'll see more of this to come. You see, the cynic in me kind of, I think a huge shift of the change from the public is down to the fact that, like, for instance, this climate new climate action plan is going to introduce legislation to ban the sale of uh, petrol and diesel cars by 2030. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, you know, there's going to be proposals to eliminate non-recyclable pl- uh, plastic, you know, as as well. And and I think people have a newfound interest um, in climate, in, in, in climate change and ways to address and improve the, um, the, the, the whole area because it's going to impact on their pocket. And yeah, but, but that's not necessarily, necessarily a bad thing, though. It will, it'll but, help their pocket. Like electric vehicles, I was giving out, you know, we're relying on them too much, but the truth is the fuel cost is a fifth. The maintenance cost is probably something similar. As they become mainstream and every car producer is going to be producing in the next few years, it's not going to cost you in the pocket. It's going to cost you less. But let's go a step further. Let's not just have this model where everyone owns a car. We have two million cars in the country where 95% of the time every those cars are parked, not being used. Let's use this opportunity to switch to car sharing, where maybe we'd only need 200,000 cars and they'd been on the road more all the time. But that would save you a fortune. You wouldn't have to tax the mm. thing. You wouldn't have to insure the thing. You wouldn't have to have all the other costs associated with this. It's funny you say so, that because I'm, I, I am that person. I am somebody who has a car that might actually not move for 
two, sometimes even three weeks. There's actually weeks I'd have to go out and start my car to make sure that it's going to work. But at the same time, the prospect of car sharing doesn't appeal to me. But the job is, our job in the political system, this is system change. It's the scale of change people don't realise it's going to change everything. We're going to change the entire food system, the entire energy system, the entire waste system, the entire uh, transport system. And one thing we've learned to think of the environmental movement the last 34 years, if 40 years, if we put all the emphasis on you, are you using the right car? Are you, is that a right light bulb up there? Are you, is that coffee cup correct or whatnot? <laughs> I mean, we just make people feel guilty yeah. and shamed and it doesn't work. What the job, the political system is, is to design the system so it's easier for people to do the right thing without it being a daily moral choice. So for you, just as now you're going out to test whether the car is still working because you haven't driven it for three or three weeks, it just should be so easy. It should be like on your phone in five minutes without ever any hassle to actually get access to the car that you might want, but not have to have it parked outside your house all the time. And that's not impossible. It does require sometimes where you're saying, by regulation in 10 years' time, we're not going to have any more of those, or we're not going to allow any more single-use plastic. We're going to stop it by, and, and make it easy for people to do the right thing. And mm. when we've done that in the past, we found people actually like it. They actually find, you know, did we need those all those plastic bags? No, we didn't. Did we, did we need the smoking in pubs beforehand? No, we didn't. It's sometimes it, but it requires a bit of leadership, a bit of bravery to be willing to risk the leap to a different system. And that's what we need to do. And it'll only work, in my mind, if it's a better system. It's only work well, if it is actually yeah. more economic. It's actually better quality of life. It's not a negative. We're not going to talk about people going back to hair shirts and misery and penury. It's a healthier system. It's a stronger community economy. It's a different ownership. It's not going to be as mm. what Thomas Piketty sees the, the current economic model, 1% owning everything, everyone else eating the crumbs. It has to be a change for the better. And that's what I think the job of the political system is to steer us towards. How do you think that system change, Cara Gustenberg, would be received by the public? I think people are, are, are realising now that this is the biggest technological transformation we've had to make since the Industrial Revolution. So I think I think people accept that, that this is a massive change and that everything will change. And if you look at younger generations now in big cities like San Francisco, mm. they don't want to own a car. They want that extra money to spend on holidays or fun. They want to be on good public transportation, able to chat with their friends and look at Wi-Fi and, you know, and actually get work done on their commute. And particularly if we get into technology that involves you know, um, driverless vehicles where a car could come and get you right away and, you know, and you don't even have to learn how to drive. Um, That is a a better system. It's just not the system that maybe you and I are used to. So I think a lot of these things around uh, sharing, be it cars or power tools or any of that, it it could actually be a better quality of life for a lot of of people. And and, and people are starting to realize that, but we very much need to paint that picture for people of what the world could look like if we make this transition quickly and effectively. Well, I suppose an easy way to do that is in terms of the cost of items and it's kind of the carrot and stick approach, Eamon. Like, how do you think the government can try and get the, you know, try and entice, I suppose, more people to look at the the options in terms of even, for instance, at a fairly basic level, electric cars and meeting targets in that sector is probably one of the more easier um, targets to reach. It is because the electric cars are better cars and they're in every which way. So that's going to happen. I go back to what I was saying. I don't think it's just a matter of which is what the government's report is all about, just switching your diesel car to your electric car. It is about 
providing public transport that really is much more efficient again. And it is about active walking and cycling and creating an environment where our kids are able to do that and not threatened by an environment which is dominated by a car. Like 80% of our kids are not getting their recommended daily exercise. Like that's not Mm. a small thing. That's not inconsequential. That's not good. That's not a system we should be proud of. It sucks. It needs to change. So how do you do that? You don't, you do it by making safer and, and that's often about allocating space. So let's say we get the system where we move towards car sharing. Then maybe we don't need so many car parking spaces. Maybe then we could use, rather than chopping down every tree in Dublin and taking out the front gardens to cater for all the cars, we start thinking, do you know what? We don't need so much space for the car. Let's create the space and make it a cycling city and do the same in Cork, Limerick, Waterford, Galway. And I bet you, I'm absolutely convinced of this for certain. As soon as we do that, we will become like Copenhagen or Amsterdam. The Irish people are dying to get out on their bikes. Anytime we do it, we put a cycle like one little bit along the Grand Canal. The Mm. numbers jumped immediately 50%. The Velocity Conference here the week before last, everyone internationally was scratching their heads. This is such a terrible environment for cycling, but there's so many cyclists. God, can you imagine what it would be like if you actually made it safe? And safer would be as well that it's just really kind of efficient time-wise. Like you know, any journey under four mm. miles, you're going to win on a bike. So that's just one example. It's the same in every other example. Can I just come one other example? I just think it's it's really one of the myths we have to slay here. One of the myths is that this is going to cost. Um, second myth is this is going to be myth, myth is that this is going to be bad for rural Ireland. That's rubbish. Current system, average age of Irish farmers 57 and rising. No young people are going into farming because they don't get an income out of it. Let's switch. Let's say we really want to reverse that dramatic decline in nature, in our bird life population, in our insect population. Let's pay farmers for managing wetlands in a way that also stores carbon, which is what it does, and protects nature. And let's pay people really well for that. Well, interestingly... Let's, let's switch on a forestry model that creates this incredibly vibrant forest and pay people probably yeah. first. But, but, but and, interestingly, I mean, though, I don't... Like, I, I fully accept your point, but I don't know that those particular, if you like, new models or alternative models are going to work in every part of the country. Like, are they It'll f- be different for every part. You actually tune it to each local place. And I think it will work. It's a political decision. Like we currently have a political system and a political decision around food that favours big industrial processing corporations. They're the ones making all the money. They get all the profits. They're doing grand on the current system. Small Irish family farm is doing poorly. Why wouldn't we switch that and say collectively we politically agree that we want small Irish farms and we want young people to be working in rural Ireland, managing nature, managing the land, managing this incredibly beautiful country we have. What's wrong with that as a political aim? And if we get agreement on that, we make it possible. Okay, hi, hi, Cara Augustenberg, we heard from Dara McCullough, um, farmer and broadcaster on the show a little bit earlier today. And he said that he is a farmer himself and he knows that other farmers often feel, as he described it, that they're like environmental terrorists when the issue of climate action and the new climate action plan is mentioned with regards to farmers, because he feels that a lot of farmers think that every time they get into their tractor and start it, that they're single-handedly killing the environment. So how do we implement the plans that Eamon's talking about and look at the agricultural sector across the country? I think, as Eamon's right, you do have to look at it in a in a geographical 
um, from a geographical perspective, it is going to be different. Yeah. But how do we make the sector more sustainable well, in the future? I, I think historically we have framed the environmental issue here as a as a f- agriculture versus environment debate. And every time an environmentalist come on, they put someone from the agricultural community against them. And it's actually crazy because I don't know a single environmentalist that doesn't really appreciate farmers as protectors of the environment. The fact that we're not uh, a big manufacturing country and that we have a much more rural economy, that's really, really good for the environment. And, and you know, I, I, we very much should be working together. And I think uh, aside from the media, we are working together in a, in a lot of ways. So uh, the big problem is, is that farmers obviously are going for what they can get revenue from. And the government has told them the only way to, to earn a living here is dairy. That but it's, it's fair enough dairy. because it's a livelihood. That is like. absolutely fair enough. But but that's not working really for every farmer. I mean, as Eamon said, you know, young young farmers aren't going to th- into this. We have about nine community supportive agriculture programs going on right now in different parts of rural Ireland that are working. And young people don't even know about them. So the idea that a, that a farmer could provide horticultural products directly to people within the community who would absorb the risk if there was a, a crop shortage. Um, there are other options, but of course Chagask doesn't have a, a mandate to look at horticulture very extensively. I mean, they're very much beef and dairy focused, so they're not looking at horticulture. They're not looking at organic. They're not looking at any other models other than intensification of dairy. And, uh, and, and that's where the problem is, is that farmers are getting bad advice from government. How do you think we address that, Eamon Ryan? You pay people for, properly for the alternative. I think the key switch point here is with the new common agricultural policy, which has to be agreed by this new European Parliament uh, in the next year. And it is paying farmers for storing carbon. It is paying farmers for managing diversity and, and protecting nature. It is paying farmers for improving access to land. It's it's allowing us all connect to nature. And I think that's not easy, but that's where it's going to go. And I think um, we need a national land use plan. This is one of the key things we've been pushing for in the Oireachtas Committee. And I actually learned it from Karen, a friend of hers out in UCD, Roger Shutter, was it? He, he worked in Chagas. Yeah. And going back to your point, every part of the country is different. Like Sligo and Roscommon is mm. different to the Golden Vale. You can't manage the two in the same. Currently, we're running the system for the Golden Vale and, and forget about the rest. Well, we need to start thinking about Roscommon. And rather than just letting it turn into tumbleweed wilderness, which is what the current direction of travel is going, let's actually manage to think we want to put forestry back up into Roscommon and Leitrim, let's say. But we don't want to just put those Sitka spruce monoculture forests where the local communities feel they're completely cut off and you're tearing the forest down every 30 years. It's thrashing the soil. It's affecting the water quality. That affects insect life. That affects bird life. That's just a continuing tumbling breakdown of nature. Turn it around and think about it the other way. Let's create a forest that's a hundred year forest where we have a whole generation of new young foresters going in, taking out trees in a really scientific way. So you create gaps in the forest. So there's light in the forest. So the trees naturally seed and then you get really high quality timber. Now, it takes time. It takes a hundred years. But but that's the decision. That's the political decision. Our current political system says I want a 30 year, grow it fast, cut it down, cut it all down as a monoculture, fairly low quality wood that we use from chip pulp boards and it's versus a political system says, do you know what? 
our nature is more important than that. Our communities are more important than that. I'd prefer to have forests that's a joy to walk through, that provides employment for the next hundred years of really scientific forestry, managing it for high nature value, and and also managing our hedgerows and agroforestry mm. within well, farming. And if you if you pay for that, that's what'll happen. Currently, we don't. Currently, we pay for the alternative. But what I want to know is, I mean, like, how do you tell the farmer in, in the northwest of Ireland that's either a beef or a dairy farmer at the moment that has pumped a huge amount of investment, a business loan into setting up what is a business in their back doorstep? How do you get them to shift to working in the I forestry sector to, and when do they start to make I money? I think they're starting to shift because I think a lot of them realise that they're the ones who actually mortgaged up to the hilt on this model. They're the ones who've been told by Chagas to intensify, 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 more numbers, more numbers, more feed, more more fertilisers, more imports, more veterinary bills, more bank bills, more every bill. And then you're exposed on an international commodity market. We're selling on a green origin green brand where we're getting a commodity price into a world where we're now competing with South American beef and dairy from New Zealand and New Zealand thrashed our land in that competition, we should not do the same. We should look after our land. We should look after our family farms. We should pay them properly, but not to be part of that big business model because I don't think it works. And it doesn't work on this fundamental principle that if you thrash your land, if you lose the natural fertility of your soil, if you foul your watercourses, that's the most important thing of all you've lost because we are not separate to nature. We depend on nature. We rely on that natural soil fertility. And actually the really best farmers now, the smart young farmers are starting to realise that. They're all about soil fertility. They're at Cara's right. These guys and girls, they're both, are, are the heroes in the environmental movement. They're the ones that we represent who are really good at managing soil, at protecting water, at protecting nature. And we want to pay them for that. And I think that that story is going to flip okay. because, there's, because there's no future in the alternative. There's no future when you lose nature. No. I'm looking at some of the targets in the plan as well, for instance, Cara, and that kind of trajectory to try and achieve like a zero carbon emission by 2050. Are they too far away, the targets? Is there any way yeah. to make them uh, well, I mean, more they, accessible in the short I, term? I think aligning with the what was the, the EU policy of, of, of a 2050 zero emissions or net zero emissions is, was, uh, was the right way to go. And uh, yeah, we need to be ambitious and we need to be fast. So, so I, the overarching target... I think is is good. Uh, the, the the targets around energy retrofit and you know travel mm. and everything are it's not clear how we actually make them happen. And I think that's the problem. I mean, they're talking about retrofitting 500,000 homes to B2 rating and putting in 600,000 heat pumps. And that's great. But how are we going to do it? How are we going to make that transition? Do we have the labor to do it? I mean, not, let alone the finances, but do we have trained people to actually install this stuff? And and uh, there are big question marks around those kind of smaller goals. Yeah, like on the transport, there's a couple of positives I took from it. And Eamon, I know it's something we've discussed time and time again here in the programme in terms of cycling initiatives. But the idea of kind of expanding the current cycle, the current network of cycle paths, the, the park and ride facilities, those kind of things surely have to be welcome. Yeah, but let's do it. What Cara said is true. It's it's all talk. How do you actually do it? And that's tough. They're tough decisions. Like that's that's bus connects in Dublin now and we have a choice. I think what we should be doing is throttling back the cars, both in the way we manage the traffic light sequence and in the way we allocate space. That means a lot of one-way routes for cars rather than two-way that may mean some places taking the car out altogether, in my mind. Now, that's not easy because the current, the reason why politicians buy into the current system is because 75% of all trips are by car. 
our soul's false premise that if we only had another little bit of road, then we'd all be free and it'd be like in that advert where I'm driving a four-wheel drive on the side of a mountain with the Alps in the background and this beautiful music playing. If only just a little bit more roads, then we'd be able to do it. It won't work. We currently, but, but politicians understand that because 75% of people are making those trips and think that way maybe, they think, oh, we'll just do that little bit more and then it'll fi- mm. finally work. We have 51 major national roads and motorways either being built at the moment or in the planning phase. How many public transport projects do we have at the same phase? Zero. Zero. So all that talk. We've been talking about putting cycle lanes in for 20, like that Liffey cycle route. Yeah, yeah. Seven years, seven years in planning and we're still at the drawing board. I mean... It's about time we started doing this stuff, not just talking about it. Okay, we're going to take a very short break. Uh, Do stay with us. We'll be back with more from our panel in just a moment. Between the Lines on Newstalk. You're welcome back to the final part of News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. Today we're discussing the government's climate action plan and what impact it'll have on Irish society. Our panel still with us today, Dr. Cara Augustenberg, who's a senior fellow in UCD's Environmental Policy and Programme and Council Estate, and also Eamon Ryan, the leader of the Green Party and TD for Dublin Bay South as well. Um, Cara, can I ask you just to kind of give me... Like when you look at other EU countries and how they're actually meeting and reducing um, gas emissions, mm-hmm. what do you see as the sort of what's the role model? Which country's the role model? Like, how are there any small steps that we can adapt from other EU countries at a certainly at a fairly kind of a short term basis? Yeah, I think every country has different strengths and weaknesses. Perhaps so. So Norway would be the, the probably the role model for uh, transport, just because they have a very very strong public transport system, and they also have, have a lot of uh, adoption of electric vehicles, the highest in the in the world. But of course, they're you know they're wealthy because they sell oil, offshore oil, mm. and gas. Well, so, that's it, and we're not comparing know, like with like yeah, sometimes so, that we talk about there. So it's tricky to say there's there's one country that's doing it all right, but there's certainly examples in every sector of countries that are doing things better. I mean, the Netherlands has, has got a good horticultural sector, um, you know, so so we can look at different countries and 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 for examples of how to do things better. But but I think Ireland in particular has a very unique opportunity, one, because we're not heavily do- dominated by by manufacturing, because we have this rural economy anyway, which, you know, a lot of climate action can be done uh, at the rural level. So we actually have an easier opportunity to lead if we choose to. Eamon? Yeah, I agree. I think sometimes I'm sick and tired of giving an example and everyone goes to Scandinavia. I know. But it's also, as you mentioned, and, because because of the oil exploration, we're yeah, not. But even the Danes, like, they're not that good. Like, I remember arriving, <laughs> no, I remember arriving <laughs> in Copenhagen. Oh, can we see all the offshore wind farms? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Where they're, they're behind that building. What's that building? Oh, that's the big coal-fired power station that runs half of Copenhagen. Sorry. Mm. I mean, they're good on cycling in there, but we're not bad. And actually, I think we're going to be good. We're going to be bloody great, I think, because because we've natural advantages, as Cara says. We have a family farming model. The UK lost their family farming model. We haven't. Mm. We, we haven't lost that strength. And that point Cara made earlier, too, about the appetite among the younger generation now. Yeah. And also... We work well collectively as a country. Like, look at America, how they tackle this climate issue. They're hopeless because they've divided. Mm-hmm. They're dividing on it on a political basis. The Green New Deal is the darling of the Democrat left. The Republicans hate it. That won't work. We have to have a Green New Deal that everyone buys into. And I think, actually, we're not far away from that. We can, we're can. we a small enough country to be able to come together and coalesce and, co- and work collectively. We're big enough to be a good example for the rest of the world. I think we're going to be that. I think at the moment, yeah, everyone calls us loud. 
laggards we are. Our numbers are shocking. They're poor. Mm. But I bet you, I'm fairly sure we're going to be good at this. We're going to be great. In terms of doing things differently, Cara, can I ask you, like, like obviously the, the plans are being put in place, for instance, for the development of Budget 2020. We're due to get that in early October. Mm-hmm. Will we get a kind of an insight at that stage as to how serious, for instance, government's taken this climate action plan and when it'll actually be rolled out mm-hmm. when we start to see how much money has been pumped into each of these areas? Well, I, I mean, I think we'll definitely get a carbon tax in the next budget. I would be shocked if we didn't see one after the, this climate plan. Um, that's not going to provide a lot of revenue, but that's certainly going to provide a, a market signal to to people who are buying new cars, for example, or or replacing their old boilers. That It's not 30 euro mark, as yeah, Belton being speculated, yeah. that we need to hit, isn't it? Well, I mean, it'll go up to 80 euro yeah, per ton yeah. from 20 where it is now. But, but um, for, you know, for someone who's looking at, at replacing a boiler in their home, certainly if we see that over time the cost of carbon is going to go up, suddenly putting in a heat pump makes more economic sense, you know, or for somebody who's replacing their car. So we need those kind of market signals. Now, that won't be enough revenue to make this big transition, but but we need to see that kind of trajectory. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we'll have to see some big changes. I, I think the probably the most interesting thing in the plan is that it says that carbon proofing all government decisions is, is going to have to become uh, part of this plan. And if that had happened before we agreed to build the third run day, runway at Dublin Airport, I think that would have had a profound change because obviously that third runway is going to increase emissions from aviation substantially and, and we never kind of evaluated it for, for those things. So we're going to have to carbon proof everything and that will change a lot of the budget decisions. But I think as Eamon was saying, one of the biggest strengths we have in Ireland is is with all its failings, our political system right now has allowed an unprecedented level of environmental change because we have this situation of new politics where mm. we no longer have a Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil dominated government. Uh, we're getting much more environmental leg- legislation through. We're getting every party trying to claim green credentials, which is a good thing. Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. I know if, it shouldn't be a bad thing. Yeah, like even it's... if it's disingenuous. And and we have a lot of access to our politicians too, and yeah. incredible relative to, to the United States. So so I think that's an opportunity to, to actually go from laggard to okay. leader too. In the budget, Eamon, I mean, I know like ideally there's probably a, you know, a plethora of things that you'd like to see introduced um, to try and address and, and, and roll out the, the government's climate action plan. But what are going to be the key signals? Is the Well, on that tax thing, it should be handed back to citizens as a dividend. Barra Roundtree from the ESRI showed two weeks ago how that would be really progressive. It would help people on lower incomes. It would be really beneficial for social policy. And I think we also had a meeting, had a meeting last week with the officials in the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. We can do it. We can do it in a really low-cost way. Every how would, how cent. How would that work? You'd use both the social welfare system and the tax system to give a direct cash payment back in advance of paying anything. It would be revenue neutral. We wouldn't raise any tax revenue from it, but the households um, would gain, particularly those in lower incomes. That's just one element of it. But you get it, you get it in advance though, so you're yeah. not, it's not a... Yeah. We, would, we would do it quarterly payments in advance so you get, and you actually get a benefit. There's still a signal, the one that Cara mentioned there mm. on the price of carbon, on the price of pollution, but it is not hammering or hitting the Irish householder. That's really important to my mind. And I think it's the best way of doing it. Some people say you should put it into grants, but then you're just favouring people who maybe who are well off who could afford the rest of the cost of something. I think it's better as a cash payment. And I think that is, is a key thing. Now, uh, But that's not the main thing, actually. All the focus is on that. But the key thing, in my mind, is starting to switch the transport budget so that instead of it being two-to-one roads to public transport, we go two-to-one public transport to roads. And also, come back to what I said earlier on, it's also what's happening in Europe. It's getting an agreement around 
the common agricultural policy new rules so that we pay farmers properly for doing the right thing. Mm. And secondly, that we change our forestry model so we start paying... Like the government has said in the plan, we're going to do 8,500 hectares of forestry. But it's the same old forestry model. We should be using this chance of moment of change for real change towards forests that are there for, as I said, 100 years that are a joy for biodiversity, for high-quality timber, for lots of employment for for uh, protecting our water quality as well as storing carbon. That's the big change. It's not easy, but that has to start in this budget. It's those sort of practical, physical change, the way we actually look after our land, and that relates to how we look after each other. That so, has to change. Interesting that point on the public transport, because I actually was ho- at home in South Donegal recently, and I had to get there and get back via public transport, so I had reason to use the train and the bus. And, and a car as well to get around. And like the prospect of trying to use public transport in outside of Dublin doesn't appeal to me at all, Carol. Like, yeah. It's just incredibly difficult. Yeah. So I still think that two to one balance you're talking about, Eamon, is fine in the urban centres. But, you know, beyond Calvin into the northwest, it's... Switzerland, cantons in Switzerland, which aren't that different. They've low population density in some places. They have a rule that if you have a population, I think it is of 400 or over you are guaranteed a bus service of at least 12 buses a day. And I think that's the sort of transitional shift we need to make. We need to be aiming for. Yep. Cara, what's your view on that? Well, I think even if you did something as simple as saying, you know, every road uh, within one mile of a a village and a a village pub had a cycle path on it, the amount of people that would therefore have access to safe cycling uh, in that village would would transform profoundly. And if you look at things like the Greenway, you know, the Waterford Greenway, it's packed with people. People are craving this. As Eamon said, Mm. people want to get on their bikes. They want safe places for their kids to cycle and to be more active uh, and to revitalize our rural villages, something as simple as, as that, which wouldn't cost a lot of money, could could transform them potentially. No, really interesting discussion. Well, I suppose we'll know we'll have an awful lot more, perhaps, in terms of the detail and how seriously the government is actually taking this when we get the budget. And I've no doubt there'll be uh, lots of um, commentary from members of the public as well who will view it that maybe they have to pay a little bit more for their their transport and the use of their um, their petrol as well and or diesel in their car. But my thanks to you both for joining us today. Our panel: Eamon Ryan, leader of the Green Party and deputy for Dublin Bay South, and Dr. Cara Gustenberg, senior fellow in UCD's environmental policy and programme as well. Um, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. If you've missed any of the programme, you can download the podcast on Go Loud app or on our website at newstalk.com. My thanks to the production team, Elaine Power and Stephen Jordan. I'll be back again with Between the Lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day.